0: Before I begin, I do want to thank the weavers. Thank you, Amanda, Will, and Daniel for stepping in this morning. I am very grateful that you were willing to do that on last second notice, so thank you. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for the incarnation. We praise you that, Lord, the events that we are about to study and look upon in the life of Abraham initiated a point, Lord, that has gone down through space-time history to bring about the Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we can still look at Abraham's life, this man of faith, and know, Lord, that the same type of faith is available to us today. So, Lord, we pray that your word would encourage us, that it would edify us this morning, and most of all, you would be glorified. We pray this in the finished work of Christ. Amen. Well, just this past week, I was having a conversation with Sherry Vazone over here. And at one point, we were talking about the return of Christ. And she jokingly said, well, I'm ready, aren't you? And I responded back laughing, saying yes, but I'd like to see a few things get done first. And if truth be known, as much as I love Jesus and want to see him, that was a sincere response from my heart. I know this to be true because there are these times that I lie awake at night and I become aware of my own mortality and think, what if I die in my sleep? And there's a part of my mind that thinks upon the gospel in that moment and I'm comforted that I will be with Jesus. And yet, there's also this part of me that's still ambitious concerning this life on earth. There are unfinished tasks that I like to get accomplished, worthy tasks, Things like, I want to see gracious Savior succeed. I I want to see family members and friends that I've been praying for to come to Christ, come to Him. I want to see my daughters get married. I want to see and and play with grandchildren. Hint, hint. There are also writing projects that I like to finish, articles and books to be published that I keep putting off. And most of all, I like to make sure that Lisa is financially secure. Unfinished business, I think. And from the standpoint of my life on this earth, that's a strange thought to have. My business is finished when God says it's finished. It will not be like one of those afterlife movies where you desire to come back because you left something unfinished. I'm going to be before the throne of God, seeing and confirming with my eyes that my God is sovereign and He does whatever He pleases. And I can trust Him to take care of my unfinished business in His timing and just enjoy being in eternity with Him. Perhaps you have such thoughts too. Nah, I'm sure I'm the only one. But in our passage this morning, our friend and father Abraham dies. It feels like over these past few months, we have become intimately acquainted with him. And through the Holy Spirit, we have. And because we come to the end of his story in Genesis, we should take a moment to reflect and evaluate his life before we move on to Isaac. Did Abraham leave behind any unfinished business? Well, this is a natural place to do this. When we started Genesis, I told you that it's arranged in 10 books. And each book begins with the words, these are the generations of so-and-so. And And Genesis 25 contains the last part of Abraham's life, which completes book 6. Then it transitions to the shortest section, book 7, which gives us a very brief overview of the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's firstborn by Hagar. And in the latter part of the chapter, we will see the beginning of book eight, which is Isaac's story, the firstborn of Abraham by Sarah. And today I want to cover the first 18 verses, which completes Abraham's book and covers all of Ishmael's. And I'm going to do this by explaining the text first, and then we'll summarize Abraham's life. So that's going to form our headings this morning. Part one, finish book six and seven, and then part two, do the summary. For the casual reader of Genesis, chapter 25 starts with a surprise. We discover that Abraham has another wife named Keturah. She's never been mentioned prior to this point. She gave Abraham six sons. And one might wonder why Abraham did this when it might jeopardize the promise given exclusively to Isaac. In fact, it makes the bigger questions as, where did she come from? And when did she arrive? Well, we can't say for certain because the text does not tell us. It only reveals that Abraham had children by her, and this is also confirmed in the genealogy of First Chronicles chapter 1. Now, there are three primary theories concerning Keturah. In verse 6, she's also referred to as a concubine, plural, where one would assume this includes not only Keturah, but also Hagar, who's mentioned later. Some scholars believe that Keturah was presented to Abraham by one of the chieftains of the land for the purpose of uniting with the people of Canaan in order to preserve some type of peace. These scholars believe that she arrived on the scene sometime between the birth of Ishmael and chapter 17 when God explicitly told Abraham that the heir would come through Sarah. Now remember, this was the time when Sarah and Abraham themselves were conspiring to have a child apart from God's providence. So that would not be out of character for them. If they tried it once, they might try it again just to make sure they had up backup sons here. The second theory is that Keturah was Abraham's concubine, like in the first theory. And because her children didn't seem to pose a threat to Isaac, they were allowed to stick around for a bit. And after Sarah's death, Abraham married Keturah, as reported in verse 1, elevating her from the status of concubine to wife. That is theory number two. Concubine first, and then wife second. And the third theory is that Keturah appeared after Sarah died. And Abraham, at the age of 137, to replace his loneliness with Sarah, was somehow able to produce at least six additional sons. Now, you can take your pick as to which one of these you like. There is sort of a spectrum here from Abraham being an absolute scoundrel to him being somewhat faithful to one woman at a time. Now, if I was pressed, I would choose the first theory, that Keturah arrived sometime near the time as Hagar when Abraham uh, didn't know, A, that the promised child had to be from Sarah, and B, that he should not marry someone from Canaan. There's not much to say about Keturah's children There's only one of significance here, and that's Midian. I'm not gonna bother you to uh, mention all these offspring that make minor appearances in Old Testament, though I will say I was quite amused watching Randy try to pronounce them earlier. Leuman is also a difficult one, Randy, wherever you're sitting, I know that. Oh, he's back there grinning from ear to ear. And I I noticed you, Randy, because you're as red as Rudolph's nose right now. I love the historical stuff, but I'm not going to bore you with that. But the most important part of including these six sons here is that the text reveals that just like Ishmael, these sons were sent away with gifts. And unlike Isaac, they are not included in the promise. So if one were to read the origins of the Jews and ask, well, what about Midian? Should his descendants be included in the promised covenant? Well, this synopsis would prove absolutely not. Abraham makes it clear before his death that Isaac alone is the heir. And the very last part of this section is the death of Abraham. He died at age 175. He had been in Canaan approximately 100 years, with the exception of his little jaunt to Egypt during the famine. Isaac would have been 75 years old when his father died. Esau and Jacob would be 15 years old each. The phrase, gathered to his people in verse 8, actually implies immortality, not burial. It is used 10 times in the Old Testament, and in addition to the patriarchs, it's also going to be used of Moses and Aaron. It suggests the thinking that when one died, they would see their ancestors in an afterlife. And this comes from the Lord himself. God promised Abraham, back in chapter 15, verse 15, "'As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace.'" you shall be buried in a good old age. And part of Abraham's promise was that there would be an afterlife for him. Jesus also said something similar. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) Pardon. When he was being tested by the Sadducees over the resurrection of the dead, he told them in Matthew chapter 22, verse 31, and as for the resurrection of the dead... Have you not read what was said to you by God? I am, present tense, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So Jesus believed in an afterlife for these patriarchs. We'll need to ask ourselves, well, what about Ishmael a little bit later when a similar phrase is employed? And the final observation is to see like Sarah... Abraham was also buried in the cave of Machpelah. And interesting or surprisingly, Ishmael and Isaac meet up together to do this. One might think Ishmael might resent his dad for sending him away. But we will discover that Ishmael was blessed because of his father. His resentment was reserved for his siblings and their descendants alone. Nothing is said about the other six half-brothers by Keturah being involved with the funeral. But once again... Isaac is highlighted, and we are told that he received God's specific blessing and was residing in Beer Lahai Roya, the very place where Hagar was found by the angel of the Lord and instructed to return to Sarah. God was watching over this family still. Book 7 begins with the phrase, these are the generations of Ishmael. Now, we might wonder why Ishmael has a book in Genesis and Keturah's descendants do not. We need to remember that a promise was made to Hagar and Ishmael as well. Not the same promise made to Sarah and Isaac, but a promise from the Lord nonetheless. That was given in chapter 16. Let me read that to you once again. Chapter 16, verse 9. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude." And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man and his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will dwell over against all his kindred. That prophecy is emphasized here in chapter 25, verse 12, where Ishmael is highlighted as the son of Abraham. And look at this, thank you. There's an elder servant there for you. I'll bring it up. Thank you, Brandon. And I will take a drink. But that prophecy is emphasized in chapter 25, verse 12. Ishmael is highlighted as the son of Abraham and Hagar. And notice it says, Sarah's servant, not his wife nor concubine. Moses would need to include this portion of the book to explain what happened to Abraham's firstborn with such a prophecy upon him. And his holy promise is referred to again in the genealogy of 1 Chronicles, chapter 1. Like the descendants of Keturah, there is not much to say about Ishmael's children. They also appear in other obscure references of the Old Testament. But there are two important points to note here. First, the 12 sons are called 12 princes of 12 tribes, or we might say distinct family units. The Lord made good on his promise that Ishmael's offspring would be greatly numbered as well. According to verse 18, his descendants settle across from Egypt, which would be the Arabian Peninsula. Ishmael is the founder of the Arabic nations. And we are told that as promised, they would be against their kindred, which is true to this day. Both the Jews and the Muslims claim Abraham as a founder, and both are against one another still. Ishmael dies at age 137, and it would appear he is not buried at Machpelah with his father and Sarah. Isaac and Jacob will be, but not Ishmael, thus again emphasizing his separation from the covenantal promise. And while he received what God promised him, there's no mention here of God's extended blessing like there was for Isaac back in verse 11. Lastly, Ishmael also receives the designation that he was gathered to his people. Now, there are two possible explanations for this. (coughs) One is that while Ishmael may have been at odds with his brother, but because of the supernatural experience with his mother, He was still a believer in Yahweh. Ishmael still trusted in the Lord, but his descendants drifted because they were not part of the chosen. Don't forget, Ishmael was circumcised as a teenager back in chapter 17. Ishmael could have believed in a future savior from Isaac's offspring, even if it wasn't from his own. That's one explanation. (coughs) Excuse me. The other is that there are two types of people in the afterlife, those of the promise and those who were not of the promise. Meaning that even at this early stage in biblical history, that all souls were eternal, but their eternal state was divided. Abraham, Isaac, Moses, and Aaron had their people that they were gathered to in reward. Ishmael had his in punishment. And while I believe in an eternal hell again, if pressed, I prefer the first explanation. Mainly because no other member outside of the promise receives this designation. Ishmael is unique to receive this blessing. So now we've arrived at the conclusion of Abraham's life. We've seen some events concerning Isaac in our previous chapters, and we've seen what were the end results of Ishmael. So what can we say about Father Abraham and his many sons? For many sons had Father Abraham and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's begin there. If we were to begin with the bloodline of Abraham alone, then in addition to the Jews and the Edomites, descendants of Esau, this childless man up until his age 89 produced at least 22 other people groups through eight sons. Possibly more in that we just don't have the family lines past the grandchildren. So already at his death, Abraham is the father of many nations another point to note is that Abraham is a model of sanctification for us this is one of the reasons I love the scriptures it reveals the significant and the insignificant flaws of the people it records Isaac is a glutton and he plays favorites with his sons Jacob deceives his father. Moses is a murderer and presumes upon God when he strikes the rock in the wilderness. David is both a murderer and adulterer. All of them are deeply flawed. In composing Genesis, it would have been so easy for Moses to have omitted Abraham's second concubine, Keturah. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he doesn't. He includes the flaws as well as the successes. And time and time again, Abraham jeopardizes the promised seed from God. Twice, twice, he pawns off Sarah as his sister. What if she had gotten pregnant by either Pharaoh or Abimelech? At least seven different times, he has sons through another concubine other than Sarah. Once he tried to run away from the land that God wants him in. And he even laughs in the face of God when he is told he's going to have a son through Sarah. All of this while he is walking with God. We see his faith steadily growing and at times ebbing. His strong moments and his weak moments. I love Abraham because if there is hope for him, there is hope for me. I've been walking with the Lord for 32 years now, and I repeatedly blow it. Yet he is still working on me. He hasn't given up on me yet. But that brings us to the blessing of this particular season. The reason that I know God will not give up on me is because of the one promise through Abraham's offspring that he has come. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God's Son entered into the world as a real person with flesh and blood. He lived perfectly and even put himself forth as a sacrifice to pay the sin debt to God for all who believe in Him. Whatever works that we owed God, Jesus took care of. Paul tells us that in Galatians that, that all who place their faith in this Savior become not only sons of Abraham but the sons of God. Not just Isaac's descendants, but also Ishmael's and Keturah's. They also, by faith, can become adopted sons of God. We can all approach God and be reconciled to Him through Jesus. Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, "'Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Anyone can come to Jesus through faith. Black, white, brown, tan, rich, poor, straight people, gay people, Americans, Palestinians, Ukrainians, and Russians. Those who have committed atrocities And those who have sinned very little, all can be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And if your faith is resting on Christ and not on your own merits, then you are secure. You're secure even when you blow it. Your relationship with God has never been about your behavior, it never can be. God is too holy, and you're just too much of a sinner. Your relationship to God is based on whether you believe that Jesus atones for your sin by His perfect life sacrificed on your behalf at the cross. And whether you believe that is going to be demonstrated in how you desire to live for Him in the future because you love Him and you're grateful for what He did for you. So we all become like Abraham. Some days we get it right. Our faith is is strong. It's so strong that we can face down tyrant emperors and chase them back to Turkey like Abraham did in chapter 14. In other days, our faith is so weak and we sin and we're coming to God once again pleading for His steadfast love. The reason God doesn't give up on you is because He sent His Son into the world to ransom you from the penalty of sin. The debt has already been paid and you have been adopted as his child if you want you can turn with me here but turn to luke chapter 1 this is found on page 856 if you're turning there with me and look at the first words that came out of the mouth of the priest Zechariah after he was able to speak again Now, the first part of this prophecy up to verse 74 concerns Jesus, and the second concerns his son, John the Baptist. We're just going to look at the first part here. This is Luke chapter 1, verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, excuse me, and has raised up a horn of salvation. For us in the house of his servant David. And he had spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hates us. Our enemies are sin and Satan. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all of our days. Do you hear that? Because King Jesus has come, we can serve the Lord without fear and in the righteousness of Christ. When it comes to Abraham, we might even ask, was Abraham faithful to God? Or Yahweh faithful to him? Did Abraham keep himself in faith? Or did God keep him faithful? So allow me to get back to my comments concerning unfinished business. This fear that I might have left something undone in this world. Twice this past week, when I was speaking with someone, the words regrets came up. On the one hand, I had a friend tell me that he had regrets for things he had not done when he was younger. And then on the other hand, I had a friend tell me that he had regrets over things that he had done when he was younger. For some reason, we think that God has given us a to-do list, and our goal is to get as much of the right things done as we can and to eliminate the bad. And if we don't get them all done or corrected, our lives might be a failure. And when you get before the throne of God, he's gonna say, well, did you get project A done? No, you ran out of time? Hmm. Well, what about project B? Did you get that behavior corrected that I told you to work on? No, well, I'm really disappointed, son. But that is the wrong approach to success before God. He will not ask you how much he got done, but he's gonna ask you, Did you learn to trust in me? Did you learn to trust in me? Did you have faith in me and who I am? When you saw someone hungry, did you have faith to share your food? When you saw someone naked, did you share your coat, having faith that I could take care of both of you? When someone was in prison, did you have faith that I could give them a second or third or fourth chance like I've given you? What did you do with the talents that I gave you? No, I I don't care how productive you were, whether it was little or great. Did you use them and demonstrate that my son Jesus was enough in such a moment? He's not going to tally up a list of the times you did well or you did poorly. He wants you to learn to demonstrate faith in his son right now. Right now, in this moment. Some of you have strong faith at this moment. You're flying high. You're chasing the tyrants. You're dwelling in the good land. You're willing to to sacrifice your most precious possession, even if it's your own child. And you're more aware of God's covenantal promises than you ever have been. And you feel like, man, my my quiet time and my prayer life is soaring. There's no way I'm going to sin right now. And some of you are in weak faith, you're tired. You feel exhausted. And you're saying, I love you, Jesus, but right now, if I was to be honest, I just want to soothe my hurt through this particular sin. I just want things my way for a change. I feel beat up. I'm not sure I can take another step. But yet, even in the weak faith, there is this spark welling up in you. And while your performance is pitiful in your heart, you just can't let go of Jesus. There's a reason for that. Because he's not letting go of you. And even though you know he should cast you out, you claim his promise to Abraham of covenantal love. And you crawl back towards him, and what do you find? Do you find a a demanding father waiting there for you with a list of chores to work off his grievances? Do you find a harsh, scolding? No, you find a father that is running to meet you, and he is wrapping his arms around you, and he's yelling out at this time, prepare the feast, for today my child has come home. This is Abraham's life. He had his good days and he had his bad days, but through it all, he kept his eyes on the coming Jesus, on the promise that God would be his God and his people would have Yahweh as their God. Now, I've addressed those with strong faith and those with weak faith, but let me address those who think they have no faith. All of us have faith in something, something we believe about the world and that we're living our life on behalf. Even if you believe there is no God and then you die and that's it, that's still a faith in something a belief that you're banking upon. And if that's you, possibly everything I'm saying seems strangely odd to you. But if whatever you are placing your faith on in this world seems to to be a little unstable to you in this moment, maybe your bank account, your career, your spouse, your, your PlayStation that you may spend all your time on, maybe it feels a little bit rattled right now, like you're not sure anymore that this is the right place for you to be banking on, then I want to invite you to investigate Jesus. In fact, let's have a conversation about Him. And perhaps, just perhaps, your faith is starting to be redirected. Be brave enough to check Him out. No matter what's happened to you in church in the past, no matter who may have hurt you, have some encouragement to investigate Jesus. Find out what his word says. Is he asking you to measure up with a particular expectation, or is he saying, I'm the only hope you have because I've already measured up for you? Look to Jesus, not to yourself or this world. Look to Jesus. Allow Him to be your all in all. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word, which is such a comfort to us, Lord. It is a comfort sometimes with doctrinal phrases, Lord, strong truth that we can stand firm on. And it's also a comfort to us, Lord, by the stories and the history that it reveals And we thank you, Lord, that you tell us the story honestly, that there are flawed men like Abraham, whom you have called to yourself, and that you have developed faith in his life, Lord. You've imparted that to him. And that we can look at people like Abraham, who start off really lousy at this, and yet we see them growing in their faith with you, trusting day by day, even when they fail, relying on upon your promise. And Lord, you have promised through your son, Jesus Christ, that he can take away our sin. And we know, Lord, that you never break your promises. Your word is always true. We know this because we have said it over and over again that what Yahweh wants, Yahweh gets. You never have to lie. You never have to trick. You never have to deceive. You never have to coax. All we have to do is believe. And so, Lord, we pray that this morning, whether we're in strong faith, whether we are in weak faith, or whether we are surrounded by those who have no faith in you, that you would turn our eyes towards the Lord Jesus Christ, that he would be our vision, that he would be our riches, that he would be our all in all, and that we would desire to serve him, to love him, and to be grateful for the wonderful gift of what he has purchased for us by his own flesh and blood. We pray this through his finished work alone. Amen.